You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's reading is going to be from Luke 4, verses 14 through 30, and that's on page 807 on, in the Bibles that are under your seat, around your seat. And so, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he spoke well of him, and all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me in this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and the great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to the home of none but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow." And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum and Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out to town, out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, My name is Ethan. If I haven't met you, um, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is great to be uh, teaching today. And um, if if you're just now joining us, uh, we're taking a break from a sermon series that we've been in in the book of Matthew. We've been in it throughout the fall, and uh, we're we're at a break during the month of January. We all start with New Year's resolutions, right? How are you doing on those? All right, we'll talk about that later. you know, some people make resolutions, some people resolve not to make plans, but we kind of land in, in different places. But where we are in um, right now, in this month, we, uh, we are going through just kind of a an, an one-off series where we're just looking um, at God's word, uh, and we're really kind of, it's not a wild card, we're not just like, you know, I don't know if you ever read the Bible, if you like just first started reading the Bible. I know when I was uh, first coming to know Jesus, there was kind of this thing where it was like, throw the Bible, and if it flops open, that's what God wants you to read? We, I don't know if y'all do that. I hope you don't do that. But that's, that's not a great way to re- approach the Bible reading. But So we're not approaching it that way. We're approaching it in a kind of systematic way um, where each year we have a Bible reading plan as a church. And uh, our hope in that is that, that we would just be people who are formed by the Word of God. Um, in years past, we've kind of had, where there might be like four readings a week, um, and, and we really do uh, try to kind of even derive our Sunday liturgy from the Bible reading plan. But this year, we're stepping into a new uh, Bible reading plan 
we're in it. Um, it's called Seeing Jesus Together. If you look at the info tables back through um, the door back here, there's these, uh, man, they're really amazing, uh, kind of moleskin-type journals. And uh, throughout them, um, it's really just a framework to help you as you're reading the Bible, um, to think through uh, some questions it's called Seeing Jesus Together. There's journals. Um, there's an app that you can download on your phone. Uh, and really the aim is this. We want you to read the Word. We want to do this together. Um, we're selling these for 15 bucks, which is just what they cost, so we're not, like, you know, doing a private jet fund or anything like that. But seeing Jesus together is uh, laid out in really seven um, questions each day, seven kind of points. And, and they walk through just how do you connect with your heart? And this is really just a question of, like, where are you? What's going on? What's that kind of murmur that, that exists in you when, when things get quiet? We want to try to set aside time. Um, and, and then really it leads us to just surrender where we are through prayer. Um, the third point is that, that we would read. Um, there is an option if you have the app that you can listen uh, to the daily reading. And then it goes on to meditate on the word. And, and that's really where we're just kind of putting a pen to paper and we're saying, uh, what stands out? Why does it stand out? We're just trying to engage with the word of God. Um, and, and then it leads us through um, just praying. And there, there's acts, A-C-T-S, um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And really that is to just direct our prayers. And, and then it kind of closes out with two things that uh, kind of put our feet on the ground and, and get us moving. One is discern next steps. That might be believe, that might be do something. The text, what does it call us to do? And then the final part is one, um, seeing Jesus together uh, is one that calls us to, what do you need to share with your, um, your city group, if you're in a life transformation group, how, how do you need to share of, of what, what God's doing, um, where he's convicting you, where he's encouraging you. And uh, so our aim really is that we would just be, like I said, people formed by the word of God. Um, in, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, hey, I want you to just continue in that which you've learned from early childhood. And here's what he says. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings and they're able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, and I'm sure, hopefully, maybe potentially you've heard that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want to be in the word of God and seeing this together, looking to Jesus. Um, we want to stir up one another to love and good works, that we would see Jesus, we would love Jesus like the Father loves him. Amen? So we just want to jump into that together. Uh, if you haven't grabbed one, uh, we would love for you to grab that. And uh, today, as you just heard read, um, we are looking at Luke 4. If you're on the Seeing Jesus Together plan, you, you would have read this, not this past week, but the week prior. And uh, so here's where we are. We'll jump into it. In Luke 4, we see that Jesus shows up in his hometown of Nazareth. And think about your hometown for a minute. This might be a simple thing. It might be a little bit more of an exercise if you're kind of a military brat or you like, you know, were kind of nomadic growing up. But I'm not sure what you experience when you think about your hometown. Maybe you love it, maybe you hate it, maybe 
you really just couldn't wait to get out of it. Perhaps there's some kind of blend of the two. Like if you go back, I would anticipate that you experience people there. Those who uh, maybe forgot you and you kind of have to reintroduce yourself. Or or even those who you know really well and you're in maybe the aisle of Walmart and you're kind of like ducking to get out of the way and you avoid them. Surely there's like sights and sounds that pair with your hometown. You think about maybe food or the weather. My hometown growing up is literally the windiest city in the world. And uh, get out and stay out. That's kind of how it is. There's those windmills that, you know, if you're driving down I-35 and you see them on the side of I-35 as you get like close to Oklahoma, there are like thousands of those in western Oklahoma where I grew up. It is so windy. But what we, what we often think about, there are all these things that kind of tie you to a place. For me, there's something about being home. You run into people for better or worse. And, and you kind of, at least on the holidays, I kind of answer the same questions over and over. Run into people. It's kind of three parts. How are you guys? How's Sky and the kids? How's the church? And so I'm pretty prepped to answer that. But there's something about that that I love. Um, one of my favorite authors, his name's Wendell Berry, and, and he wrote this novel um, called Jaber Crow. And, and within it, he talks about um, this man, Jaber Crow. He's the main character in the story. He gives it right away to you. But he, he's in this city, small, small town called Port William. And, and he says this, and this is kind of profound and not, it's always stuck with me. He says, I don't remember when I did not know Port William, the town and the neighborhood. My relation to that place and my being in it and my absences from it is the story of my life. There's something true to that, right? Something to some extent that our raising has a closeness to how we identify in life, how we're known, what people think about us, even maybe what we think about ourselves. But there's also a familiar familiarity that exists within a place. How you see people, how they see you. And here in Luke 2, Jesus comes to Nazareth. In Luke 4, I'm sorry the place where he grew up. And the thing about Nazareth is that it's not necessarily a place that you would be proud to claim as your hometown. Actually, in John's gospel, we see when Jesus um, calls Philip and Nathaniel, Nathaniel gives us pretty good insight into surrounding people's opinion of Nazareth when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, imagine for yourself kind of the worst town you've visited. Maybe that's kind of like Jesus' hometown. But he goes back, and he's known in part. And this is kind of the problem. There's a familiarity with Jesus that clouds the vision of those who are gathered in the synagogue on this Sabbath day. They listened to him preach. They heard his claims. They heard his sermon. They had heard about his life. They had seen his life, and they grew ambivalent to him. And I think this is necessary for us to kind of overlay and consider today. Whether you're with us and and you would not consider yourself a Christian or whether you've been a Christian following Jesus for like 40 years, I I want us to just (coughs) all together consider how do we respond to Jesus? When we hear who Jesus is, like in Luke 4, what he claims and what he does in his ministry, prior to this sermon, to Luke 4, he, he healed many. What he says and what he does, we, we can't be neutral in response to it. His life, his message, everything about him evokes something that we must 
respond. I want to give one kind of quick note as we get into this, is that Luke places this sermon at the beginning of his gospel. If you're reading Matthew or Mark, you would notice that you find this section about Jesus being rejected at Nazareth much later. I want you to know this. In the gospels, they record true events, but they're not necessarily written as like just a simple chronological biography. So don't let that like thwart you. I realize higher, higher education might say, well, these are inconsistent. Well, here's what we want you to think about the scriptures. The, the gospel writers thought about this more like a documentary to show you something specifically about who Jesus is, is and what he came to do. And so let that overlay the top of Luke as we look at it. But what we see as, is that uh, as we're reading, even just in the seeing Jesus together, from this point, as you've, you're now a few chapters ahead of this, if you've been along the Bible reading plan, what we want you to see in Luke 4 is that everything, this is kind of a turning point early in the, in the book of Luke, that everything from here on out happens and exists in light of Jesus being rejected. John 1, 11 says that he is the one who came to his own and his own received him not. And so we want to just pose a big question. What is your response to Jesus? We're going to break this down just in three parts. We'll look at the sermon of Jesus. We'll look at the claims of Jesus. And then we will see kind of the people's response to him. So starting at the top, the sermon of Jesus. Jesus had just come from the wilderness. Um, At the beginning of chapter 4 of Luke, he was um, led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And here, he's led by the Spirit to Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue. Well, it's helpful for us to consider that Jesus actually came to preach. In the Gospel of Matthew, as we were in and throughout this fall, we see he says, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But also in Luke, we see this at the end of chapter 4, where Jesus will say, hey, I came for this. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came preaching. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah on this specific day, and and it seems as if in the text, as we look at it, that he purposefully found the place where it was written, and, and he stands to read. He quotes Isaiah 61, and then he sits down. This might seem offsetting initially. Don't let it be too confusing. This is just custom uh, at hand in the synagogue. They had a, a liturgy. Like if you gather here regularly, um, you understand we kind of have a, a system of our services. We sing together. We read things together. We preach. We have communion. We leave in a benediction, right? In this time, they would have a similar liturgy. They would do, go through the, the order of service. But what would happen when it gets to teaching is they would stand to read and they would sit down to unpack the text, to explain, to preach. And what I want you to notice is Jesus' approach to unpacking this part of Scripture. He stands. He reads 53 words. That's the text, right? And then he sits down to begin his sermon. And his sermon is nine words long. Y'all wish your pastors preached more like that, Right? <laughs> But what we see is, what is Jesus saying here? He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Consider what he's preaching. 
Consider what he's saying. He's saying, he opens it up, unfolds it, and he's saying, hey, this is me. Isaiah, this scroll, 61, what we know in our scriptures is Isaiah 61. It's about me. I'm the one who brings the good news. I'm the anointed one, empowered by the spirit of the living God. I've come to usher in the kingdom of God, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to give liberty to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that year of jubilee that you've heard about. It's here. I'm him. It's in me. Debts are forgiven. He sits down. Surely this is different than any sermon they had ever heard. Like, here's one thing we probably should get straight. If anyone ever shows up to recreate this sermon, they say, I'm the fulfillment of all God's promises, get out. Don't drink the Kool-Aid on the counter on the way out, just get out of town. They're wrong. That's because no one else can preach this sermon. No one else can make this claim. This is a a one-time sermon that stands for all time. It's the onset, the genesis, if you will, of the mic drop, right? Jesus says, this is me. Boom. In one sentence, he proclaims that he is the Messiah, the one who comes to bring this great salvation. And here's where we should naturally begin to consider. The question I should pose after this is like, what are the people going to do? How are they going to respond to this? Jesus came preaching. His sermon was pointed and his exposition was clear. And I think there's a quick side note that, that we should just evaluate when we look at Luke. Look at what Jesus does. If, you just, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, here at the beginning of his gospel, you see him come, he stands up, he opens the scriptures, he reads them, and he explains them and expounds them as interpreted through him, right? He begins his ministry this way. And if you're familiar with the end of Luke, in chapter 24, Jesus ends, bookends his ministry this way as he's on the road to Emmaus. The resurrected Lord appears, and and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is the approach to preaching. This is why we approach preaching in this way. When we unpack the scriptures, we're always going to point to Jesus because he is the one who transforms us. He's the only avenue of true transformation. So we see the sermon of Jesus. And then secondly, look at the claim of Jesus. Look at verse 18 through 21. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down in the eyes all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus stands up and he says, I am the Christ, the anointed one. He explains who this salvation is for, the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And notice how he says, proclaim. This is what I've come to do, to proclaim this news. Let's break these things up. He comes to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the poor, not simply the material, 
materially poor, but those who have a true dependence upon the Lord. The poor are those who know they're poor. The ones who are spiritually destitute in need of God's grace. We covered this as we were at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew some, some months back, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an invitation to anyone who would humble themselves and understand their need. Further, as we get into today's text, we'll see this, the end of this regarding Naaman. It's not even when thinking about the poor, it's not that the rich are unwelcome when we think about this. It's just that they, like everyone else, must come with need. So we orient ourselves toward God regarding our spiritual need. None of us are like white collar or blue collar when it comes to how we are in the spirit. We are all poor in spirit. And it's from this understanding that the good news that Jesus comes to proclaim is actually good news. Those who admit their need find salvation. We've got to come to Jesus bankrupt, aware that we don't measure up. And here's the thing, that when we realize our circumstances, Jesus gives us much more than simply material gain. He grants us the wealth of eternal life. And I think there's something else necessary to notice at the beginning of this. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, here's a list of things you need to do. He doesn't give us a a bullet point of, of commands. He doesn't say, try harder. Instead, Jesus brings and he proclaims the message of grace. And isn't this the aim, the same mission we have as a church? We live in this great tradition established by Christ of being a people who proclaim Jesus to a surrounding world. Jesus came and he said, hey, I come to bring good news to anyone, anyone who will humble themselves and admit their need. Secondly, look. It says, I come to proclaim liberty to the captives. We need to read this when we consider it in the sense of a spiritual need, spiritually captive. We don't ever see Jesus, um, at least in the Gospels, hopping into prison cells and slinging the doors open to let everyone just run free. We kind of see this in a sense in, in Acts, but not here. To preach liberty to the captives is, is to bring liberty to those who are, one of my commentaries said, those who are prisoners of war. Think about that. Framing it this way helps us kind of understand exactly what's at hand. There's not necessarily anything that would lead us to believe that there were prisoners sitting within the congregation, within um, the sound of Jesus' voice that day. But consider when you apply captives in a spiritual way. Like how many of you maybe feel or find yourself in spiritual bondage, prisoner of spiritual war. Maybe it's bondage to money. We work ourselves to death to get more, more, more. Constantly looking for the better job, the bigger house, the bigger this, the better that. Or even something as simple as like that, those bedtime tales told by Amazon whatever your retailer of choice is, you know what I'm saying? Laying in bed, face glow by the screen of your phone, where you online shop yourself to sleep at night, bound by that longing, seeking satisfaction in material things. Or bondage to guilt or shame. 
unable to get out from under the weight of reality of, of maybe what you've done, who you've done it to, or even what's been done to you. Bondage to passions of the flesh. Constantly stuck, seeking pleasure in ways that ultimately lead to your dehumanization. They dole you out. And additionally, dehumanize others, dim your understanding of people, and begin to make them objects. It's a bondage that leads to the breakdown of the understanding of what it means to be image bearers of God. A bondage to hatred or bitterness. Unable to see clearly, you kind of have clenched fists that surely you've interpreted life in the proper way and everyone else is unable to see it rightly. A life marked by the absence of thanksgiving or gratitude. If you were to turn to the end of chapter four and and even a few chapters ahead in Luke, if you've been following the Bible reading plan that I mentioned earlier, you, you would have read it this week in Luke eight that you even see There's a potential bondage to Satan. The language is thick in in Luke 8. There's no confusing, no denying it. There's a man who's captive to Satan, truly a prisoner of war. And Jesus, the one who's Lord over all natural and spiritual things, he broke that dude's chains. This guy was out among the dead, away from everyone. Stripped naked, Jesus saves him, liberates him, clothes him, and he sits at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? You've been hanging around the dead. Go proclaim life and peace to the living. That's amazing. It's an incomplete list, but do you find yourself identifying with any of these examples? And if so, to all who are captive, prisoners of war in significant ways or even seemingly easy to miss ways, Jesus is the one who brings about true freedom and true liberty. His miracles point to this reality. His message proclaims this great, amazing news. And then he says, I come to give recovering sight to the blind. It's helpful for us to know that the miracle of recovering sight was one reserved specifically for the Messiah. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, healing the blind is the most significant, most um, regular miracle that he performs. And further, if you look throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, you don't really see anyone who provides sight to the blind in a permanent way. And none of Jesus' followers in the New Testament do it really either. Sight to the blind is the work of the Messiah. But consider as if, as we did with those who are in captivity. Physical sight would, of course, be amazing, but it would not address their deepest need. Physical blindness is one thing, but spiritual blindness is altogether a greater issue. Jesus came to provide recovering sight to the blind to help them see the grace of God. Well, on Thursdays, for the last little while, I'm really hit and miss, but Heather and Lowell Terrell have, have started um, going to Pioneer Ridge Assisted Living Center here in town, and they just started a Bible study with some of the residents there, and uh, I, I join them when I can, and um, really it looks like this. We read the Bible, we talk about it, we pray, and we sing. And I like, it's kind of the funny thing of like, I think these are like the oldest saints in our church. That's how I frame them and think about them that way. You think we don't have a lot of gray hairs in our church? You ain't been a Pioneer Ridge. 
But, but that's kind of the way I think. And, and this week, as we gathered together, um, we closed out our time, and we sang um, the song Amazing Grace. And uh, one of the women, her, her name's Janet, um, <clears throat> she's practically blind. She can't see anything, and she doesn't wear glasses because she's like, it's be no, of no use. And uh, her body is failing, and her sight is failing, but you wouldn't know it as she talks about hope in Jesus. She longs for her kids even to know and follow Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. She understands her need and that physical wellness pales in comparison to the eternal vision that she's gained from Jesus Christ. She's experienced the grace of God through the Messiah The Savior has given her eternal sight, and she keeps seeing even when her vision is dimmed out. Are you aware of your blindness? Spiritually unable to see because of sin. Well, hear the anointed one who gives sight to the blind. Do you know his grace? You know, for us, may the grace of God, the amazing grace of our God be our song so that we would be a people who, who sing kind of the end of amazing grace. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, the mortal life shall cease. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Even when our bodies fail, when suffering comes, we're able to rejoice because we've received the peace of God in Jesus Christ. We know that the miracle of recovering sight to the blind is not just a momentary miracle. It's one that will be fully realized in the new creation as our faith is truly made sight. We will no longer experience pain or sadness, no fatigue, no loss. We'll gather with the saints from every tribe, nation, and tongue and worship the one who administered our healing. And this good news, it doesn't just land on us and terminate. It can't be the end of the line when we hear it. As a people who have our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, we then in turn proclaim because our Savior proclaims. If you come to know Jesus, then you have a testimony of the grace of God. You've experienced grace. And you know how it goes when you got a testimony. You got to testify, right? Somebody stand up and testify. Think about the Apostle Paul. He testified before the king Agrippa, and he recounted his conversion. Here's what he said in Acts 26. Jesus had appeared to him. He's just recalling what happened. Jesus appeared to him and said, hey, but rise and stand to your feet. For I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just like Jesus commissioned Paul, brothers and sisters, we too are commissioned to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to testify of his grace in our life. He came to give liberty to the oppressed. 
Jesus incorporates here, he steps kind of into what, what really what we have is Isaiah 58, 6. It's that he came to set at liberty the oppressed. And a little backstory in 58 of Isaiah is that God had rebuked his people because they were fasting. But as they were fasting, they were ignoring the needs of the people around them. Isaiah 58, 6, it says, is not this the fast that I choose? Like, here's what I intend for you. To loose the bonds of the wicked, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Jesus comes for the oppressed. He is the very manifestation of Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He comes to those who can see no way out. He comes to those who've had the life stomped out of them, who feel that living itself is oppression. Jesus is speaking to anyone who suffered at the hands of evil in the world. Whether it's abuse or spiritual oppression, if you've been significantly oppressed or have a loved one who's been oppressed, or simply know someone who's experienced oppression, perhaps you've observed the effect of oppression. There's a brokenness, a deconstruction of humanity, an enslaving identity, a learned norm that steals life rather than gives it. But Jesus comes and he's the one who gives life. He's the one who liberates the oppressed. He doesn't deny your reality. He came to defeat the oppressor and bring freedom to the oppressed. True freedom to live as you were designed in relation to God and in relation to man. You know, there was this quote in one of my commentaries by a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was an English journalist in like the 1920s and 30s. And he was quoted saying this after he came to Christ. He says, all other freedoms, <clears throat> once won, soon turn into new servitude. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. I mean, think about that. When you think about your life and the things you're stuck in, if you're a prisoner of war, you're oppressed in your life, really just can't get out from under the grip of sin, you find freedom for a moment. But maybe the pathway in which you found it is simply white-knuckling it. And now you're a slave to those white knuckles. It's exhausting. But when we hear the words of Jesus, we, we understand this is what he came to do, to liberate the oppressed. When everything else around seems hopeless, when you don't know where to look, look to Jesus. Unlike other tyrants, deceived by their power, who lay upon oppression on humanity, Jesus came, the one who actually, not deceived, truly holds all power and all authority to free oppressed people. He alone brings hope. Consider even how Jesus' ministry here affects or instructs us. We've got to keep proclamation to speak the gospel, to actually speak it, not just to live it, that people would see it in our lives. You've got to use words. We can put these things together. It's amazing. But to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done to forgive sin, to defeat death and hell, and to restore us to the life that we were created to live. He, he puts this at the forefront of our lives. And this doesn't unhitch what we do. It doesn't unhitch our works, our concern for others. It actually empowers us to lean in. We announce to the blind that if they believe in Jesus, they may not ever see physically with their eyes in this world. But they will see glories 
that they cannot imagine in the next. Brandon's going to talk a little bit, you've heard in, in previous weeks, about opportunity in Topeka to minister to those in prison. And, and we're meant to proclaim to prisoners that they may still be required to serve lifelong sentences, but they can be free within that jail cell. We must tell the poor that they may not have riches and they might have to serve the Lord the rest of their lives in poverty, but in glory they will receive riches they can never imagine. With the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, we preach the anointed one, Jesus Christ, and we go as those into our city who make him known. We serve and bless others, and as we do it, we constantly point to Jesus who provides eternal healing from these earthly infirmities which means we can't just preach an escapist gospel. One that says, hey, trust Jesus, escape hell, get to heaven and cheat death. No, we have to preach a gospel, the good news that it is a people acquainted with pain. We need a grit to which we preach. It must be an embodied gospel to the marginalized physically and spiritually in this, this broken world. For what world did Christ come to redeem? And what world will he restore at the resurrection of all things? We don't just preach a heavenly by and by. Heaven coming down to earth, an embodied faith, the good news of a king who has come and who will return to make all things new. We must proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 19. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is likely a reference to the year of Jubilee. But the meaning, like others we should look at, is transformed, as Jesus says here. To proclaim the Lord's favor, it's really kind of Jesus saying, hey, allow me to reintroduce myself. He's the real one, the true one, better, who says, my name is Hove. I don't know if you follow that. The word made flesh, true Jehovah. God who came near to be with us, Emmanuel. You've heard about me, he says. You've been reading about me. I actually read it to you today. Let me help you see me more clearly. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61 in verse two when he says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what's interesting is he then says this. Isaiah 61, two says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus stops there. But the next verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stops short, and I think this is purposeful. Not because Jesus has come to ignore God's judgment, but because he's highlighting who he is and what he offers. He says, hear the life of grace and believe. I wanna tell you this, judgment's delayed. Salvation is here. So Jesus says, the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing today. Jesus is the one who liberates sinners. He's the one who heals sinners. He's the one who frees sinners. He is the salvation of God. All God's promises realize in him. And that's why we gather here every Sunday. That's why we worship him, right? Jesus made significant claims. How do you respond to him? Do you believe his claims? You have to wrestle with his claims. You can't just be ambivalent. He's like crazy, or he really is who he says he is. Ambivalence is not an option. Do you believe him? I pray that you do. 
And I want you to know that while you still have breath in your lungs and a beating heart, that means God has spared your life. The second part of Psalm 61 too, the vengeance of our God has not yet landed on you, but it's still the proclamation of the Lord's favor. The life of grace is available to you. How do you respond to Jesus? In closing, let's see how the congregation responded to Jesus. Those gathered in Nazareth. As we look at the people's response to Jesus. Look at verse 22. It says, and all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, it's not this Joseph's son. The response quickly begins with marveling. But if we continue to read, we see it ends with attempted murder. We could say that things escalated quickly. They're initially amazed at his gracious words, it says. But they don't believe him to be the son of God. It's the same thing in like its modern day view. You've heard it. Maybe you ascribe to it. Even um, in, in that time, but even religious other groups, religious groups now, and even irreligious people say that Jesus is simply a good teacher. And this Joseph's boy. Their understanding, it's not like a new idea. That understanding dates back to Nazareth, right? Notice the crowd. He, they don't deny that Jesus is a good orator. His teaching sounds good. They marvel. The problem lies with his claim. Is there not this Jesus, Joseph's son? They shift to skepticism. In Mark, they say, isn't this, isn't this that carpenter boy? They're cynical. They had surely watched Jesus grow up. Remember, <clears throat> he came into the synagogue, as verse 16 says, as was his custom. He did this regularly. Maybe they had seen his handiwork throughout the city, what he had done as a carpenter, working alongside Joseph. They're skeptical, and it's a familiarity with Jesus that blinds them to acknowledging who Jesus is. And notice, anticipating their response, Jesus speaks. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Well, you've heard you did at Capernaum. Why don't you do that here as well? Isn't this telling? He knows exactly what they're thinking. He perceives their hearts and he speaks directly to their desires. Notice the pointed request. Do it here in your hometown as you did it in Capernaum. After all, we're the ones who uh, deserve to see your miracles. We raised you. Put us first. Give us the dog and pony show. You owe us They demand signs, and that's the problem. They miss the importance of Jesus' message because they see themselves as important. Pride has clouded their vision. Unbelief has made itself at home in their hearts. And isn't this a great danger for us? Like we so often more than, we want more than preaching the gospel. We want more than just seeing Jesus for who he is. We say Give me proof. And it might sound like this. Uh, I'll believe if, fill in the gap. I'll believe if I get the right spouse. If I'm healed from this sickness or my family member is healed, I'll believe if you give me the money I want. I'll believe if I get that job. I'll believe if people would start to view me in a way that I want them to. 
There's such a significant temptation to not take God at his word. Jesus is Lord, which means we accept him on his terms, not alongside our stipulations. Further notice, Jesus says, surely you're going to say this to me. Physician, heal yourself. And isn't this reminiscent of what's to come in the life and ministry of Jesus? In Luke 23, the crucifixion, I said at the beginning, rejection of Jesus is the shadow that lays over all this text. And what we know there is in Luke 23, 35, the rulers scoffed at him and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. What is that but Jesus calling their shots? He knows them. He speaks to them. He offers to them the words of grace, yet they don't hear it. They don't want to hear it. Their vision's clouded. Their ears are plugged up. Jesus will be rejected, but even his rejection will prove him as the Messiah, God's servant, the fulfiller of all the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5 is gives us this foretelling of God's servant, that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteem him not. But in this great news, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed this is amazing. Through their skepticism, Jesus realizes what's going on in their hearts, the questions they pose, and he speaks directly to them. Verse 24, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet's acceptable in his hometown. He understands the heart of the matter, that the listener's self-sufficiency and pride is clouding their understanding. So he reminds them two stories, two prophets that they would surely fam be familiar with, Elijah and Elisha. First, he speaks of a story involving Elijah and a widow. This story is recorded in 1 Kings 17. Look at, at verse 25 of Luke 4. Jesus gives us a, a bit of a summary. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah where the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. There was a great famine that came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. Hear that? None of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. You should hear that as not Israel. To a woman who was a widow. The backstory is that there was a widow here. She was out gathering sticks, gathering sticks to make a fire so she could essentially bake her and her son their last meal. Her words specifically are, hey, we're going to do this so we can eat it and die. You can hear the despondency in her statement. Poor, down and out, captive to the very famine that was oppressing their land. But what happens next is surprising. In 1 Kings 17, 13 through 16, Elijah says to her, hey, don't fear. Go and do as you've said, but first, make me a little cake of it. Bring it to me. She had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And then make something afterward for yourself and your son. 
For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, that jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And listen to this. This is crazy. (laughs) And she went and did as Elijah said. She and her household ate, she and he, Elijah and her son and their household, ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil empty according to the word of the Lord spoke by Elijah. The starving woman took Elijah at his words. She believed the message of the prophet. As long as the famine lasted, she had what she needed. Why did she respond to Elijah in this way? Why did she trust him? Jesus seems to like lead us to see that if she were like the people of Nazareth, she, she would have asked for a sign before she believed. But that's not what happened. Elijah instructed her in what to do and, and gave her to give him what she knew would be her last meal. She just handed it to some random dude she just met. Why? I think it's because she understood the reality that she was truly desperate. She was poor. She had no resources and no self-security, no, no sufficiency on her own. Perhaps if she had like kind of that back stock of flour, that she would have been tempted to trust in that which she held, that which she could see, right? But here she's aware of her need. She believed, then the miraculous happens. And doesn't this juxtapose the desire of those in Nazareth? They want the signs first. Secondly, Jesus tells a story about Naaman. He's a leper, and this comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was the, the commander of the Syrian army. He was sent by the king of Syria to be cured of leprosy. The king of Syria said, hey, go to Elisha's house. And when he shows up there, Elisha doesn't come out to meet him. Elisha sends one of his servants. And the messenger, one of Elisha's servants, instructs Naaman to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And then he says, you'll be healed of leprosy. But 2 Kings 5, 11 through 12 says this. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He's saying, does he know who I am? I'm important enough. Why ain't this dude coming out? Why is he sending his chump servant? And then he goes on. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Hear that again? Isn't this better? Where I come from, better than Israel? He's not an Israelite. Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned around and went away in a rage. You hear the disdain in the story. Naaman really thinks he's something. He's a proud man due to his military status and his, and his ethnicity. Think about that. He says, I'm not getting in those Israeli waters. And Jesus gives us the end of the story. In verse 27 of Luke 4, it says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus speaking to an Israelite crowd says, hey, the guy that got healed, he wasn't one of y'all. Initially, Naaman refused to get into the waters. 
But at the end, Jesus tells us he's healed. What changed? Here's what happens. Naaman's servants stepped in. They stepped in seeing where he was headed as a leper to leave just as he came. But they heard when he missed it, the message offered to him, be washed and be clean. And they pleaded with him. Isn't this specifically what we aim to do in community? Christian, isn't this your role? When you see your brothers and sisters, when you see family members, you step in, you speak the truth in love so that others might see Jesus rightly. They might grow mature in Christ. That we might be those who actually live as if Jesus really is Lord. That he's not dead in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East, but he's sitting on the throne, resurrected. That we might submit ourselves to him and know that we have no hope apart from the grace of God in Jesus. Today, we're, we're going to commission a city group at the end uh, of the service. And if you're not in a city group, maybe this is just a call to action. You need to be among the people of God. And we're going to have two groups that you should maybe jump into. If you've been coming for a while, get among the people of God. Maybe your, your ears are doled out like Naaman. And you need someone to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, this is not going well for you. You showed up in this way. If Jesus has changed you, he doesn't intend that you would stay this way. He wants you to walk this out. And you know what? We will we'll go with you. Let's look to Jesus. Further, salvation is not limited to the Israelites. I think Jesus is highlighting this. He's saying the gospel is the good news for anyone who would receive it. And here's the thing. This is Isaiah. And so Jesus is helping say, he points to stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And so he's helping us understand that is no afterthought. It's not a revision to the plan of redemption. Jesus is the true and faithful remnant of Israel who opens the door of salvation to anyone, anyone who would believe in him, Gentiles included. We see that clearly here. Regardless of your heritage, your ethnicity, your social status, the primary thing you need to understand is that you have need and that only in Jesus will all your needs be satisfied and met. But that's so difficult because we're given to evaluate our needs based upon circumstances. It's necessary for us to have an spiritual understanding of our depravity, our spiritual poverty, so often it's those most in need of grace and mercy who know it the least. Isn't that true? Have you experienced that? Jesus brings these stories to, to highlight the need that even those in Nazareth possessed. And look at the response in closing. He says, when they heard these things in all the synagogue, they were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the city and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Things got pretty serious quick. Jesus confronted their ethnic pride. He confronted their spiritual pride. And isn't this our story? 
Even tomorrow, as we think about Martin Luther King Jr. Day, it's a reminder and really a confrontation with ethnic superiority that Jesus had with those who were gathered in Nazareth in Luke 4, that that is not lost on us. It's our recent reality. We are prone to think of ourselves as better than other. Whether that's social status, whether that's the street you live on, the family you grew up in, the color of your skin, what you have or don't have. There are no lines off limits for how you will create um, yourself to be better than someone else. We need spiritual eyes to see and envision the human race made in the image of God for his glory, where there is no distinction between white, black, brown, rich, or poor, but all are made one in Jesus Christ. And we proclaim this news. In Nazareth, they were unwilling to admit that they were poor. They were unwilling to admit that they needed to be free. They couldn't admit that they were blind. And then this section ends, verse 30, it's haunting. But passing through their midst, Jesus, he went away. I sat down earlier this week and I read this text with Sky, my wife. And uh, we, we kind of sit down and we're reading it. And then um, I just said, what's going on in this text? If you're in city group, that's what your city group leaders say all the time. It's just a question about observation. And uh, without hesitation, my wife, <laughs> deadpan, steeped in wit and Harry Potter aptitude, says, Jesus can apparate. <laughs> that's lost on some of y'all, but it's great if you know what I'm talking about. Now, while that's hilarious, man, I, I really want us to see the seriousness of Luke's account, Jesus leaves. And after this, if you're in the Bible reading plan, you're gonna see that after this, Jesus does not return to Nazareth. They rejected his message, they rejected him, they wanted to kill him, so he gives them what they want. Fine, get out of here. They can have it their way. They were familiar with Jesus, but they did not believe him to be the Christ. We could say that they were seemingly initially cool with his exposition, but they hated his application, which should be a warning to us. You can come here weekly. You can be familiar with Jesus and reject him, not be in Christ. You see how the people responded to Jesus. And I think the question for all of us is, how do you respond to Jesus? Don't just hear the gospel today. Believe it. Amen? Pray with me. Jesus, we want to be a people who know you. We want to be a people who proclaim you. A people aware of our disbelief. A people who are aware of our poverty. A people who are aware of our blindness. That we're bound by that which we've done and by spiritual forces find ourselves as prisoners of war, but would you lay over all those kind of realities that kind of put us to shame, the reality that Jesus, you came to free us. You didn't leave us there, but you save us, and that comes from believing in you. And so would you give us deeper belief in you, more trust, more hope in you, settled spirits that we would derive all of life from you. I pray for those in this room who maybe 
um, are wrestling, who have maybe rejected or been apathetic to you, Jesus, I ask that you would grant belief this morning by the power of your spirit. So move among us as we pray, as we sing, as we come to the table for communion. Help us love you, Jesus, um, like the Father loves you by your Holy Spirit. Amen.